Hello and welcome to my Roots of Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last time out, my guest was journalist and debut author Patrick Frayne. This time out, I'm delighted to tell you that my guest is the immunologist, Trinity professor and author Luke O'Neill. Now, as we all know, there was a time when immunologists were not household names in Ireland. That time is no more. Professor Luke O'Neill has gone from being an expert in his field to, because of the arrival of COVID-19, also becoming an incredibly important voice on our airwaves in Ireland, helping people to make sense of the pandemic and sort out the truth from the rumours and the misconceptions. You'll have seen Luke on The Late Late Show. You'll have heard him on many radio shows, observed his writing in newspapers, and now he has emerged with a new book, uh, the cannily titled Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, which is a book of essays which deals with numerous subjects, everything from the likes of vaccines for COVID-19, right through to, I suppose, broader topics, uh, things like the subject of dieting, depression and gender. He asks questions like, can we escape working in bullshit jobs? Must we vaccinate our children? Are women and men's brains different? And will we destroy the planet? Leaving aside the media, Luke has had a remarkable 2020 for reasons that are not connected to uh, a global pandemic. Inflazome is the name of a small biotech company that he co-founded in 2016 with Professor Matt Cooper from the University of Queensland in Australia. That firm was recently sold to Roche, the Swiss pharmaceutical giant, for 380 million euro. Now that figure may sound startling, uh, but in the context it's quite understandable because Inflazome's research may potentially be used to treat ailments including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic kidney disease, arthritis and liver disease amongst others. Roche now plans to spend many millions testing and trialling the research from Inflazome with a view to bringing it to market. So this is extremely exciting stuff and I wanted to talk to Luke about it and also, of course, to get into the topic of COVID-19 as well as to chat about his uh, life generally, his background, his influences, where he thinks we're at in Ireland currently and broader subjects as well. We met recently in Trinity College Dublin sitting in a socially distant manner, far away from each other in his office, which flanks the laboratory in which many people were beavering away, working on four projects to do with inflammation and COVID-19. This is a, a very positive podcast. Luke is very hopeful about the arrival of the cavalry, the vaccine and a change in our circumstance. So there's plenty of good news in this one. By the way, if you'd like to support this podcast, which is, as ever, a free podcast made with love, but always happy to have support, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Nadina Regan. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast, please do consider giving it a generous star rating on the podcast platform that you're listening to it on, or tell your friends about it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or, mind-blowing thought, in real life, on the phone, in person. It's all good. Right, this is Luke O'Neill's My Roots Are Showing. Luke O'Neill, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome, Nick. Now, this has been a remarkable year for you in so many respects. I have to start by saying we're here to talk about your brand new book, by the way, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, A Scientist's Guide to the Biggest Challenges Facing Our Species Today. But I cannot not mention something else that has happened to you recently. And no, I'm not talking about the endless interviews and media yeah. uh, around, of course, 
the pandemic. But the developments in relation to the biotech firm that you co-funded um, some years ago, Inflazome, That's right. You know, which was uh, sold for 380 million. That's not a typo. Not bad, is it? That's right. Yes, it sounds like a huge amount of money. Well, it is a huge amount of money, of course. You know, in biotech, though, it's good. You know, it's a reasonable amount of upfront, as we call it. You know, but mm. it's not unprecedented. Yeah. Because pharma and biotech is a very big business, let's face it. You know. Well, tell us a little bit about what it exactly it is in terms of the research yep. and what it means for the average person. Sure. Well, I've spent 35 years working on inflammation, this process in the body. And when you get an infection, and let's face it, COVID is front and centre, your body becomes inflamed and you start to make all these sort of molecules to help you fight the infection and then repair your tissue eventually. It's really good. The trouble is it goes wrong in many different diseases and they're called inflammatory diseases. So, for example, arthritis is in your joints, you know, colitis is in your gut, Alzheimer's in your brain, Parkinson's in your brain. So many parts of the body can become inflamed and then, then we get really sick, you know, the big challenge has been to find new anti-inflammatories mm. and our company Implazome found a brand new anti-inflammatory medicine never seen before that might work in all these diseases so suddenly then we were a hot prospect I guess to be acquired because if you're a small biotech you can't take a drug to the clinic it's too expensive mm. so you need to do a deal with a big drug company and, and one model is to get bought and luckily enough Roche stepped up and bought us so that, that was the story of that one. And was there a eureka moment for you during your research where you discovered that uh, this could potentially work? It's it's kind of like that, but it isn't. It's a long slog. You know? It's not like so, it's not like first sighting the, the America, you know, Columbus. You do get results in the lab and you go, yeah. wow, look at that result. And you can, could this be true? The reason why you don't kind of punch the air is you got to make sure it's real and you can reproduce it. And science is extremely careful, you know. Mm. In fact, until someone in a different lab repeats my work, I'm never fully happy because it could have been the, the Liffey water or something, you know, this kind of thing, you know. Now, luckily with this, we discover this molecule which could block this particular pathway in my lab in Trinity. And this turned out to be true. And many other labs could reproduce our work. In fact, we gave the drug out to many labs to test for us, you know, mm. and they got the same results as us. But there would have been a couple of eureka moments, actually. The, the, one of the key ones for us was um, there's a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. As strange as it may seem, you can give a mouse Alzheimer's. Our drug cured those mice. And I went, wow, that's cool. Now, if it works in mice, it might work in cured. humans. Like cured. Not just retarded no. the process of Alzheimer's. It was a model where the mice develop Alzheimer's over a year or so, and they lose their memory, which is, which is they can, you can measure this in mice in various ways. We gave them our drug and the memory came back. They could relearn is a better way to put it, actually. You could restore learning in the mice with our drug. And that was, that was a very exciting thing to happen, obviously, because if they could work in humans, yeah. You could restore learning in a way, you know, so that, yeah. was, that was the moment that really got me. Because there must be so many people who have read the report um, in recent weeks uh, and thought to themselves, maybe there's hope. Oh, yeah. That, that's the main thing, Nadine, to be honest. I mean, mm. there's many companies developing new medicines, remember, not just us. Every time we can report a little glimmer, you know, this, this is a chance of working. It gives people hope and that can have a beneficial effect anyway. So mm. I guess one way to think of it is what we have discovered, though, is very central, we think, to those diseases. In other words, this is the main thing to go after. Mm. And Roche couldn't find the drug themselves. So a tiny Irish biotech company <laughs> came across a drug that they couldn't find, you and, see. And only found it in 2016. That's right. With yeah, yourself yeah. and Matt Cooper, Matt Cooper who was not yeah. the broadcaster. No, not the broadcaster. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It goes back a bit, though. The drug was, here's a funny part of the story for you. The drug was discovered by Pfizer, a different drug company, mm -hmm. in the late 90s as an anti-inflammatory. Okay. They didn't know what they had. and <laughs> They missed it entirely, you know. And the reason why we got great value is the targets a specific thing in the inflammatory process called NLRP3, which is a bit of a mouthful. But this is a huge on switch for inflammation and in all these diseases. Every company was trying to find a drug to block it. Pfizer had found one, right? And we could prove that their drug blocked NLRP3. Now, more importantly, Pfizer never made this into a drug. It had various problems. We made derivatives of it. We could make chemicals based on it. So you're not going to get sued like uh, no, Tom I'm, Petty and Sam Smith. No, not quite. No, no. And we, could pat, we could patent them. You don't have the same song. No, no, that's exactly right. Plagiarism. We could patent these new molecules. And Matt Cooper's a chemist, you see, and I'm a biologist. Mm. So he was able to make these new molecules. And his team in Australia, actually, one Michael Robertson was involved and she, she could make some of these follow on compounds and they're the ones we could patent. 
Mm. And they're the ones that Roche bought. But Pfizer deserve credit. Science is like that, though, Anine. Very often it's a load of people. Yeah. And it's kind of the combined effort that gives rise to the final discovery, I suppose. Yeah. Well, actually, speaking of which, maybe you can tell us a bit about where we're where we are today, because we're in your office. But outside, there's uh, a lot of snacks, uh, a lot of tea bags, <laughs> and a lot of people beavering away. What are they working on? Yeah. Well, my lab is obsessed with inflammation anyway. We still work on this, you know, and the, the implosome story is one little aspect of this, I suppose. But they're all working on aspects of the inflammatory process. Now, most relevant to today is we've got four projects on COVID-19. So as we speak, there's people out in that lab there uh, doing work on COVID-19. Because when you, when you get really sick with COVID, it's an inflammatory disease. Your lungs get very inflamed. Mm. And maybe your heart even, heart damage is part of this. And it's the inflammatory process going out of control that causes all the damage. So again, we're looking for new ways to, to tweak that, if you like, and suppress it and stop the inflammatory process damaging your own tissues is really what it's about mm. well um we'll talk a little bit about COVID-19 later but I I did actually want to ask about how you became who you are uh, first and and what it meant to you to to study biochemistry in Trinity uh you grew up in Bray I'm right I in thinking yep. uh your dad would have defined himself as you say in the new book as English um, yep. and you crucially as Irish uh so he, yep. you mentioned in the book that there were times when your dad actually thought that you would be at a disadvantage in terms of how people would see you which is interesting but uh was he a big force in your life and 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 was his way of thinking did that shape you considerably it did my dad was very um was a hippie before his time is the way I phrase it you know he fought the Second World War, amazingly. He was brought up in England, so he saw himself as English. His, his mother was Irish, but emigrated when he was a baby. He spoke with a flat Manchester accent like that. Oh, they go in sun, he spoke like Coronation Street, you know. And he was conscripted to fight in the Second World War. And then when the war ended, he came back, he came to Ireland to see it. His mother had gone back to Ireland, his mother returned to Ireland. He came to visit her. And she was living in Bray, and he met my mother, who was from Bray. Now, his whole life was about, you know, sticking it to the man I suppose in that sense you know he's very anti-establishment and I think that had a big influence on me because I couldn't go and work for a bank or an insurance company you know and, and scientists are inclined to be mavericks and they're a bit outsiders and that quite appealed to me in a way and I, I suspect that was part of the reason why I chose my particular mm -hmm. career path I mean he always said to me just make a difference I suppose do something different you know from from the masses if you will and, and science is a, is, a, is a way to be different I suppose. And do you think from a young age as well, you were quite conscious of the gift that science kind of gives to people in terms of either prolonging life or improving life? I mean, your mum, uh, like very sadly, passed away when you were in your first year uh, in Trinity studying biochemistry. And that is such a young age. It would have to have made you think very philosophically, I suppose, about the course that you'd already begun to take. Not initially, Nadine, strangely. I mean, I mean, the initial drive was just curiosity. And I loved science in school and I loved reading about science. I had a chemistry set in my bedroom. I was a bit of a nerd you know? and no. I just got pleasure out of it, you know, pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and then I knew that the medical relevance, though, yeah, I knew biochemistry would have medical relevance. I couldn't be an astronomer. I hate to say, and I love astronomers and some of them are my friends. But why bother study a distant galaxy? You see, if I could make a discovery that might give rise to a new medicine. That would be the big thrill. So increasingly, I was drawn into that. And even though my poor old mum died of cancer, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to go and cure cancer. That, that wasn't really in my mind. Mm. But it must have been in the back of my mind to some extent, you know, to make a discovery that might make, I suppose, humans better in a way from diseases. And that drew me to in immunology next, by the way, because I moved on then into immunology beyond biochemistry for that reason, I guess. Yeah. And you were kind of like I get the impression you were a lot of fun as well not to say that you're not now but yes I've as, got very old now and boring as, as, as a student like you had a band you know you were interested in travel like you, you sort of got out about the place so I know that uh, you sort of said that scientists can be seen as mavericks and you've also mentioned the word nerd but but like I think that it seems like with you you were anxious to embrace every aspect of college life or your younger years anything that your younger years could give you in terms of experimentation yeah, I think I was a very low boredom threshold. That's, that's the first reason. I always wanted to be doing things, I suppose, and stuff that interested me, you know. And, and it, it really begins with just being interested in stuff. Mm. And education is all about that, really. It's to try out your interests, in a sense. And I had great teachers. And, and in Trinity, I had great professors here that were really inspirational for me, you know. And that all helped on the journey. Because when you're 19, 20, you're pretty clueless, let's face it, aren't you? You, know? you, need, you need role models, I think. You know? What did your report cards say when you were actually in secondary school? 
Uh, I was always a bit of a swat, I must admit. You know, I was always in the top class in a way, you know, and in certain subjects. English was my best subject, interestingly. I often came top of the class in English, like in, in, in exams and what have you, you know. And what were the remarks? Uh, yeah, they were, they, were, they were never negative, let's put it that way, you know. <laughs> there was no, like, must try harder. I kind of realised, Aneen, that education was a way out as well, by the way. I knew if I did well in school, it would give me more options. I know it sounds a bit systematic now. C certainly in, in university, I realised that, that if I did well in university, it would give me a passport to go anywhere in the world, you know. And based on your CV then, if it, sounds, it does sound a bit sort of uh, well worked out at one level. And in my final, now in first year, I got a third. I hasten to add, because I wasn't enjoying myself too much, you know, so, so I barely scraped through first year. But as I got a bit older, I began to realise if I get stuck in here, I might be able to get somewhere, you know, so mm. that was kind of in my mind as well. There was a great story that you've told about how uh, you had an offer, I think, from America to come and work with a company. Uh, you and your friend were both offered the same or similar kind of conditions. Your friend took up the offer, you didn't. Yep. Maybe you could take up the tale from there. Exactly. Yes. Well, it, it was amazing. This is in the sort of late 80s. And immunology was really ramping up now. And there was all these opportunities in industry to use the immunology knowledge to make new medicines. And one company in particular in Seattle, they were called Immunex. They had a drug for arthritis, okay? And they came headhunting, I was in Cambridge, and they came headhunting to recruit people. And we were both offered a job in, in uh, Seattle, and he went and I didn't. And I came back to Ireland at that point, to an academic post, you see? Immunex, its value went up tenfold in a year. I'm not joking you. They were eventually bought by Pfizer, actually. It was one of the, and they were and, and, and he had stock options in the company. So he became very rich almost overnight through the stock options. But he's a good friend of mine, Tim Bird is his name. And he'd wind me up, you see. He'd send me little messages going, you know, you're a poor academic. Ha, ha, ha. You made the wrong decision here. You know? <laughs> but then whenever he used to visit him, he'd look after me pretty well. So it was quite nice in the end. You know? Yeah, uh, it's actually something that you get into in the book a little bit, this idea that... Um, people's work-life balance uh, is often viewed as a problem and you connect that to the fact that and I think there's a stat mentioned in the book which is really quite astonishing that I think it's 83% of Irish people uh, consider quitting their jobs uh, m many days of the week and your kind of repast to that is don't think about your work balance find a job you love yeah. and then it won't feel like work. Exactly. Yeah. The term work to me it was became clear that the term work life balance was a misconfiguring of existence on earth in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. Because you shouldn't really separate the two. And I know it's tough for people, they've got to make a living, haven't they? And they may be doing jobs that are a bit pedestrian just to pay the bills. So they understand all that part of it. But the dream has to be your work and your life should be really intermeshed. Now you still need time off, of course, and you might want to have kids and all these other things are important as well you see but but scientists have that balance it's fantastic because you what, what could be more important than trying to discover a new medicine you know mm -hmm. like I, I could work the whole time and not take any time off sometimes you know because it's just so exciting you see now the trouble is in society it's very hard for everybody to be like that isn't it you know people still have to work for you know the likes of big corporations and so on but even in that context people can get the right kind of balance or they can get, get the right kind of a job for themselves to feel fulfilled is the key is the key, is the key word i guess well i think it's it's really easy for people to understand that excitement now because we all feel like we've been plunged into a mass experiment and a race against time to find a vaccine or a number of vaccines for covid19 but Prior to this year, this year of the pandemic, or indeed, well, t December 2019 was when it was discovered in, in Wuhan. Uh, what was your life like? Because you weren't always a late, late show appearing. No, uh, that's a surprise to me. You know, well. radio star. <laughs> what was your day to day like? Well, my passion was the lab, remember? I mean, driving our research programmes. Mm -hmm. I had big grants from the Irish government, from the European Union, just to explore ideas. I mean, I mean, if you're a scientist, you're looking to solve puzzles, really, which is satisfying. And I'm working on the immune system, on inflammation, on all these diseases. We, we worked on all these diseases before, remember. I mean, we had a big interest in Alzheimer's, a big interest in arthritis. My, my PhD was about rheumatoid arthritis, for example, you know, which is a big inflammatory disease, mm. you see. So, so that was a huge sort of thrill anyway, to be working on those diseases. Now, meanwhile, I'm working with companies as well because 
and it's part of my job in Trinity is to collaborate with industry. They sometimes fund some of the research. Our students get placements in companies and my lab is very much part of that. So, so I was always plugged into the, the, you might call it the commercialization part because to make any of our discoveries real, you've got to go to a drug company. They're the one, universities don't make medicines, you know, so you have to collaborate with them to make your, your dream become a reality. And then of course the example of an implosome is the best one, isn't it, Rosh now? So that was always going on. So my day-to-day -day life was very much tied into the research. And then very importantly, teaching, because I am in a university and I loved teaching, I still do, you see, and telling students about all this stuff, which is a brilliant thrill to turn them on, if you like, and brainwash them into becoming scientists in a strange how many, way. How many hours are you teaching a week? It's a lot less now. No, I used to, a huge amount when I was younger because obviously, see, the research began to take over. I can't do everything, you know. I've got something like seven PhD students in my lab, and that's teaching partly because you've got to train them and educate them and all the rest, you know. So I give, I suppose I give about five courses in Trinity now. I give the first years their first five lectures in biology, which is a real thrill because they're all sitting there all keen paying attention you know they, they they not anymore by the way it was all online this year but uh, but i love teaching the first years and then the final year immunology you know master's students so it spans all the ages i suppose so my life was a mix of research commercialization and then teaching that was the main thing and then the occasional media stuff like with pat kenny for example on news talk you know yeah that was um, part of it as well yeah and then i suppose flash forward to december 2019 I, I don't know when it was that you first heard about COVID-19, but maybe you can take us back to that moment. I can. Well, I saw it. I mean, us scientists saw it because it was getting reported new virus. We thought it was like SARS, though, like SARS and MERS. So they're very similar to, to SARS-CoV-2. Mm. And then in the second week in January, never forget it, I was at a conference in Rotterdam on viruses and the immune system. And all these virus experts were there, including the guy who discovered SARS, an American guy. And he said to me, have you heard about this new virus? I said, yeah, I've seen it and you know, written about it. He said, I'm very worried about this one. He says, this is going to be a global pandemic. And he said, 70% of the world's population will have to be infected before we get out of this. And I'm going, wow, this is the SARS expert saying, this could be very serious, you see. Now at that stage, we felt it could be like SARS, which meant you could, you could get rid of it quickly because it's people with symptoms are spreading it, you know. And, and SARS, I think SARS eventually infected 10,000 people. And then they got rid of it because they could isolate those people. This one, by the time you get to March, we knew we were in trouble because it was spread without symptoms. And that's very hard to contain. Mm. And then the reports begin to come out of, you know, the death rate goes up and Italy, Bergamo frightened everybody, for instance, you know. So suddenly, almost week on week, they need to begin to grow and grow and grow, you know. Mm. And then I, I would think by the time we get to middle of March, we knew we were in trouble. This is going to be very serious. You know? mm. At that point, it seemed as though almost the public image of COVID-19 was in question in the sense of how people would react to it, how seriously would government take it? Would they, for example, threaten the economic future of yeah. businesses in order to service the good health of the people? And this question began looming um, in March and has not left us since. And. I presume every single person you meet on the street has an opinion about this one. And we're talking in November 2020. Uh, we're in the middle of another uh, level five restrictions. They call it like not the full lockdown, but in effect, it yeah. is very close to a full lockdown with businesses mainly shut and a few resources available in how we would ordinarily think of things. Do you think that is the right route? It's very difficult to you know, overall, remember, because we don't know enough about the virus. The, the number one problem we have is the unknowns. Let's face it, okay? We probably know 50% of it. And back in January, The Economist wrote a great little editorial early on and said, look, this is the problem with this virus. We know 50%. How do you make a decision if you've half the, half the information? And therefore, opinion comes into play and different opinions and conflicting opinions. And all the opinions are valid, remember. And if you're a business person, as business has collapsed, you'll have one opinion. If you're a doctor on the front line of a hospital, which is overcrowded with people dying of COVID-19, you will have a different opinion, you know. And then if you're an immunologist like me, you'll have a third opinion. I know the science behind this, you see. So how do you get some kind of consensus? It's very difficult. And that's why you need governments. Sadly, it's their job to look at all the inputs, I suppose, and mm, come to some kind of decision. You, know? you say governments, you don't say NAFIS. They're, they're advising the government. It's the government's job. The elected representatives of this country have to make the decision eventually. Now, they can deploy experts. 
and go to experts for advice. And public health is the big one that NEFA is, you see. But equally, they should take advice off as many people as they can, remember. Now, our government has gone down the medical route largely to, to protect people. The mission, the first mission has to be to stop people dying. Okay, that's got to be in the minds of a new, it's a brand new disease. Never on earth before, remember. This thing jumps from a bat into a human, we think, right? Brand new disease. It's almost like an alien from outer space is now among us. Starts to spread like wildfire. Starts to kill people. Probably 1% mortality. Okay, now what do you do if you're a government? You want to protect the people don't you, from dying. And then you want to stop getting sick because that can have long-term consequences. You're now in trouble because you're weighing up protecting people from COVID-19 versus destroying the economy and killing people for a separate reason and the death rate goes up because of your, your policies. And that's the conflict that's raged ever since this began, really. And where do you get the balance, you know? Some countries went aggressively to repress this virus completely and almost destroy their economies in the process right and now they're coming back a bit hopefully you know and their economies might recover europe wasn't able to do what china did we're not a police state we couldn't we couldn't take people's liberties away you see so it's really difficult to, to get the balance right between these things and i have sympathy for politicians as a result because they have to make it if they get it wrong people will die mm. well at the point that we're talking now uh we're mere hours after um tanisha lee has gotten embroiled in quite a bit of controversy over the leaking of a document that was branded confidential uh, to an organisation. Now, my reaction to that, leaving aside the rights and wrongs of the leaking of the document, was, you know, this is a person who, you know, is a a non-practising doctor, Mm. but a doctor who really understands health, who is in a very significant position in government. And it would be hard to see somebody like that go at such a time of need in 2020. What was your reaction? Massive distraction. <laughs> We're in the middle of the biggest health emergency in 100 years, right? And this story crops up and I wouldn't even read the details. Either. I couldn't be bothered, you know, because I'm thinking, I don't know about that. OK, I want this to go away. I don't care how it goes away. If he has to resign, someone else can take his place. I don't really, you know, worry about that necessarily, you know. So I just see it as a distraction from the main event, which is the trouble we're in because of this pandemic. And remember, it's like a hurricane is still raging out there, you know. And now there's someone worrying about a leak in the roof over here, something, you know, this kind of thing, you know. So I see it as a distraction. So you're basically say. saying irrelevant. Well, I take your point. Is he is he competent enough? And do we still want him to help us fight this virus? Probably the answer is yes. I think he did a good job, Leo, at the start of all this, to be honest. And he is medically trained and he's a very competent person and a very effective politician. You want him on your team in this emergency, I would think, overall, you know. Now, if this incident threatens his credibility and makes the government unstable, then you want to get rid of him. This is as bad as the Second World War and the Blitz is happening over London, right? And there was great cohesion during that war, really. You know, we need the same thing during this, you see. So, so if the politicians begin to sort of, uh, shall we say, lose the faith of the people. That's a massive negative in this situation. Yeah. And, you know, the book gets into uh, subjects like, for example, uh, vaccinations and uh, other aspects, I suppose, of Irish life. One um, area that I thought was is very interesting in relation to both COVID-19 and and your personal stance is what you think in relation to major figures uh, or major organisations like, for example, Ryanair um, or Aer Lingus, uh, the fact that our travel has been so drastically limited in and out of this country. And that is connected to the testing regime uh, of people coming in and out of the country. And you've suggested that people who are significant figures uh, should be doing more that it shouldn't just be the government trying to implement things like test Mm. and trace, but that people who have the wherewithal or capacity to do it should be getting started. Like, Well, again, this is probably me speaking outside my expertise, but I do feel that if your business is collapsing, right, (laughs) any business, what do you do, right? Now, you might get government support. That's happening with this pandemic. But equally, if you want your business to thrive, you might introduce certain things into your business to help your business to thrive. And for the airline industry, that means testing and tracing and isolating, really. Certainly testing at a minimum, you see. And other airlines have looked into this, like Emirates and so on. And there might be a premium on your tickets. You might spend an extra 25 euro to get a test on, for instance, you know. So, so I suppose what I was trying to suggest there was that airlines will be more proactive than just complaining. 
say, right? And maybe they should roll out their own tests, you see, and get a testing and, and subcontract testing to a reputable company and then start testing their passengers. That might be one way to help them. The whole idea of the COVID passport. That kind of thing, precisely. Yeah. Now, and it's tough for them as well because we love universal testing. Every If everybody had a test, three, say, tests per week or something, this is a massive weapon to use against the virus because you can isolate people who are positive, you know. And even if it's only 80% accurate, that would make a big difference. And we need that to get rolled out more and more. And then that will be an answer, you know. But in the interim, testing to allow for travel, that would be a great way for the airline industry to, to see some kind of recovery coming for them as well. I got a bit of a shock, actually, listening to you on Pat Kenny recently when you talked about the efficacy of masks. Uh we have a, an idea that when we wear a mask, we are protected. Now, there was a debate in this going back as far as April with the WHO saying uh, that they didn't know, they weren't recommending at that point the use of masks. And then that radically changed uh, in recent months, as we all know. And now we wear masks indoors almost all the time unless, if we can't do social distancing. But some masks are better than others it yeah. turns out yeah well like most things isn't it in a sense you know and the trouble is it's been a rapid business the mask sort of area in a sense all these masks are now on sale in shops as ever there can be a lack of regulation there and standard slip and all that kind of thing and what got me about that thing was uh, which magazine looked at all these different masks and said most of these aren't that good you know they're on sale in shops and that was a bit of a wake up call I suppose and it was that particles were coming through yeah they were measuring the particles coming through now now the masks a good way to think of this as well even if the mask is half effective it's better than nothing for definite you know so in other words most of the masks were probably okay they weren't great and then the question comes what, what, what's, a, what's a high standard mask and what level of performance do you need and stuff and that's what that witch magazine article was sort of saying in a way you know but it's still it's not as if you stick a mask on and you're bulletproof that's the way to think of it you know and some masks are better than others and I just wanted to tell people this you know to, to make them aware that there's differences in masks and perhaps the best mask is the one you make yourself for two layers they were shown to be pretty efficacious you know the one you buy in the local news agent maybe that's not as good that, that was the kind of message I suppose I was trying to get across but better than nothing I'd, I'd still buy the one in the news agent and wear it by the way you know because yeah. it will have an effect you know it's mm -hmm. that kind of thing well, what do you think about the anti-maskers? Because it's hard sometimes, uh, and I will declare from the outset, I'm not an anti-masker fan, and it's hard to see them, you know, over the motorway by RTE, uh, declaring that uh, the national broadcaster is engaging in a conspiracy or that all of this is some kind of con. There are some high profile individuals on Twitter or other forms of social media essentially spreading a, the kind of disinformation yeah. that could wind up killing people. That's the serious end of it by far. I mean, it's a free country. People can say whatever the hell they like and they can go marching and all that. We are in a democracy after all, you know. So the only question becomes, is what they're saying going to be harmful and give rise to more death and illness, shall we say. And you look at the science again, and that's what the book is all about. Remember, what does the science tell us about masks? And the science is compelling now. It wasn't compelling back in February. It was a bit hit and miss, and that's why the WHO was a bit reluctant, you know. And previous studies on masks were often equivocal. And if you look at those, I looked at it in great detail myself as a scientist. And those studies weren't done well, half of them. They were badly done. They were badly controlled. There were some good studies that were a bit negative and some that were positive, you know. But back in the, this is back in the 80s and 90s. Nobody was doing this properly anyway, you know, it wasn't done. When the pandemic begins, the mask science gets better and better in terms of rigour reproducibility all the things you want science to be basically you know and three things happen that convince me personally that we should all wear masks and i would any anybody who speaks against masks i'll say this is my argument in favor you come back with a counter argument if you will and we'll discuss it like reasonable people and we'll come to some conclusion that's what science does all the time remember so so the first thing was this asymptomatic spread this virus is spread by people with no symptoms the only way to stop it is with a mask because you don't know who's sick and who isn't that was number one uh, the second one was experiments done by mit in reputable places testing masks using very elaborate imaging technology, stopping 99% of droplets. We know the virus is in a droplet. So that was the second pillar, if you will, scientific evidence. The third was animal studies. Now, now the, the, the dream would be, and the reason why people who speak out against masks um, get some traction is they want to see an experiment with humans. In other words, we give masks to a thousand people. We don't mask another thousand, let them out in the community, see what happens. That's the double blind 
trial in a way. You can't do that in a pandemic because you're putting people at risk of disease. So it's not possible, but they still claim this is what's needed. Animals are, are your next best thing. So the infected animals, they put a mask between two sides of the cage and the animals on the other side didn't get infected. Okay? If there was no mask, they did. Now, to me, that's the evidence you need. It's not 100% because you haven't got that proper controlled trial being done, but that's enough for me to say, look, masks are making a difference. Not just me, by the way. I mean, mm. I, I read it myself as a scientist. I, I evaluated the data myself and I came to that conclusion without listening to experts. But the vast majority of experts are saying masks are stopping spread of this virus and there's a huge unanimity. Now, if people still say that masks don't work, they don't become anti-maskers, they become mask deniers. It changed the terminology. <laughs> They're denying the evidence now. Like the Holocaust deniers is a good analogy. Same, we should stop saying anti-vaxxer, but you should call them vaccine deniers because they're denying the evidence, you see, and the evidence is there. Now, some people will go, I don't believe that evidence, it's fake. You can't win with those people. <laughs> and what you end up with then in science is a consensus among the majority of scientists. There'll always be a couple of scientists saying that smoking doesn't cause cancer or that climate change isn't caused by humans. They're a massive minority, you know. The vast majority say, no, this is the data. Take it or leave it now, you know. Now, your question really is important. What do you do with this if it's harming people? What do you do next? Do you make mask wearing mandatory? That's one possibility, you know. Do you lock people up because they're harming people? If they're medically qualified, do you struck, strike them off? And this happens with other things, you see. These are very punitive you know, what's the word, sort of a, like, you know, draconian sort of police state type stuff, you know. And that may have to come. It may, if this pandemic continues into next year, and, and woe betide, this isn't going to be the case and there's no vaccine, and the world economy has collapsed, and 10 million people are dead, then you start saying, I'm not having this anymore now. You people are hindering progress here, you know. Well, actually, that's something that a lot of people have suggested around when we had imposed level three restrictions. A lot of people said, OK, impose level three, don't go to level five, but impose level three with fines and more of a Garda presence around, you know, give them genuine legal powers to enforce the, the restrictions. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's sort of the worst case scenario in a way. You're much better off having a consensus. In the, well, no, you're much better off having consensus in the people, in a sense. You know, like the Swedes are a good example, to be honest. They're a very compliant country. Well, they're a very controversial country because, of course, their, their entire approach to COVID-19 has yeah. been radically different from other people. And they're in trouble now because <laughs> the numbers are going back up there, you know. Yeah. But, but you, you, the, the best society leads by consensus, not by laws. Because if you have to impose laws on people, you're kind of failing in a way, you know. So that, you start with that and hope for that. Okay? Now, there's a reason why not wearing a seatbelt is illegal. Remember, drink driving is a good example. It's not about you. It's about you killing someone because you're drunk behind but the wheel of a car. let's take the example of smoking. You know, yep. you can't smoke in a cinema. You can't smoke exactly on an airplane. You can't smoke on a bus. And when the smoking laws were introduced, everybody says, everybody said, this won't work. Ireland won't stand for it. The people will revolt. And actually... The exact opposite happened. Yeah. People were delighted to be in a clean space and the people who wanted to smoke simply went outside. Yeah. End of story. Exactly. We were all amazed, weren't we? And it was fantastic, wasn't it, the way people responded? And, and I think but it's a tipping point. we improved our health system. It's, it's a tipping point thing, in the sense they reckon it's to tipping points. Mm. So with this punitive response to COVID, right, the question becomes if the majority of the Irish people would want punitive laws, then we have to implement them would be my view. And you can't hold a referendum on this either, by the way. You need the government to judge this in a sense. And you do polls and you ask people, I suppose, and then try to get to that point, you see. Mm. So so I think we're, we're so going to move in that direction. Reached, people haven't reached this kind of critical consensus yet where they've kind of realised, look, we need to be uh, getting these restraints in order for us to proceed well. As, I as think so. Yeah, I, but the other part of this must be they not enough guards or whatever. Maybe the guards. Well, you would feel sorry for the guards. Couldn't implement it. You know, yeah. there could be issues about implementation of these things. You know, mm. as well. So you can't just suddenly say, "Oh, look, we're going to make it illegal if you're not wearing a mask on a train, and we're going to arrest you and put you in jail." There's no point having that unless you can implement it. You know, so I suspect there was an implementation concern as well yeah, as yeah. you know the notion of making laws to make people do things. Yeah. Well, you dedicate an entire chapter in the new book to the subject of vaccinations, and of course it is probably one of the most important subjects of our time currently because for all that we exist in, in hope and belief that we will have an effective vaccine or number of vaccines to come very soon to fight COVID-19, if people refuse to take the vaccine, 
then we're left in a really terrifying yeah. situation. So can you take me through why it is that there is this new thing called, as you put it, vaccine hesitancy? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been around for ages anyway. I mean, even when the very first vaccine was invented, (laughs) smallpox. I've written the book about this, actually. You know, when the smallpox vaccine came out, Mm. there was a massive lobby against it using this cowpox. How Mm. dare you? And there was even pictures showing that children turned into cows. If you you gave them the cowpox vaccine, you know. You have a a picture in the book of a child with smallpox and he's bare chested and he's sitting next to another child. and the other child had been vaccinated and the first child hadn't. And the first child is destroyed. Yep. His skin is covered in 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 the pox, essentially. And to look at it, it is the most stark uh, visual, you know, just depiction of the importance of a, of a vaccine. And yeah. and yet, you know, you've, you say in the book, you have two sons, you would unhesitantly yep. vaccinate your sons and have done for everything. But why why are people so scared? Yeah, it's understand. You see, the thing about this is if you're an immunologist, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I know all the science behind it. And I really, you know, it's so compelling. Now, why do people not accept the science is the next question, I suppose. It, it's complicated, actually. And I have a certain amount of sympathy for it. Because it's, it's nobody wants to stick a needle in their baby and the baby isn't sick. It begins with that. You've got to encourage parents all the time and say, look, this is the right thing to do. And then you give them the evidence as best you can and you lay it out in front of them. And, and the GP is really important. If, if the parent trusts the GP, trust becomes they don't need to see the science then. They do it, you know. So, so hesitancy comes from a reluctance to do something to someone that isn't sick, first of all. And then it starts with that and then it, then it begins to get worse and worse. And, and the main issue we have with the vaccine deniers now is it becomes political. And it's not a political thing. Vaccines are a medical intervention that stopped millions of people dying. And the evidence supports that, you see. So so why people speak out against it is an, an enduring mystery to us because of scientists, because we think the evidence is so strong that there's such a benefit. You do admit, though, in the book that there will be a number of people who will experience a small number of, of side effects. That's yeah. And, and, and you weigh that up against the benefit, remember. So in other words, there will, of course, every medical intervention will cause some problem, right? But you're weighing that up against the benefit to society, which is vastly weighed in the favour of benefits, you see. Tiny number of people are badly affected by vaccines. Tiny, tiny, tiny. Not to use vaccines based on that tiny number is very misguided because then you're putting a lot more people at risk of illness and death and destruction, remember, you see. So, so, so and, it's very hard to, and the other thing is, Nadine, it's hard for people to get the, understand the balance between those two numbers and they go, oh, look, a single child dying means we shouldn't use vaccines at all. That's not a rational, reasonable response and it's certainly not a response that, that that anybody who wants to protect the human species from these illnesses would take because if you don't vaccinate and polio came back 20,000 people a year are paralyzed in the US by that virus when the vaccine was introduced it went to five or ten people a year are paralyzed now that's the evidence you know and all you can do is lay it out in that way and explain it to people and hope that they'll be listening and it's hard you know mm-hmm. and especially with this virus at the moment because people don't want to hear about this oh that's awful I even a vaccine it seems oh that sounds a bit you know something I wouldn't want to get into so it's a question of cajolery I suppose eventually and trying to convince people yeah well people have a lot of self-interest they want to protect their own families they want to take care of their own children and sometimes they're not thinking about the wider world yeah yeah that's exactly right yeah and 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 they've studied vaccine hesitancy for a long time and and ways around and in that chapter i lay out here here are the reasons why it's safe to vaccinate you know and all you can do is lay out the evidence and hope that people will read it and 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 be reasonable again that word you know because science that's the essence of the book is in that chapter in a way science is, is there to help us and it's to give us evidence to make a decision on something and then if you're a reasonable person, you'll say, yes, that's a sensible thing to do. You know? And then the vaccine debate really captures that. Another aspect of the book is uh, it's, I suppose, your chronicling of mental health issues. And you're quite open and honest about the fact that you did yourself suffer from depression after a period after the birth of your first son. That's right. Yeah. And right now in the country, I feel like everybody can see the black dog on the horizon and is doing their level best to fight it in whatever way they possibly can. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about, I suppose, the, the physical uh, threat of COVID-19, but the mental health threat of COVID-19 is also really significant. Uh, how do you 
how do you how do we cope with that? Yeah, it's this easily the big thing that's going to come at us more and more. You see, now I think we will crack this virus through medical intervention, through therapies in the hospital, which is great, by the way, the big progress there, and then the vaccine. All right, but but the the sort of enduring legacy of this is mental health. There's no question. Because of all the usual things, I mean, there's, there's massive anxiety because of losing your job. There's fear of this virus. Many people are still frightened. That provokes the depressive response. And any psychologist will tell you we can predict now a level of awful problems for people, you see. And you're right. I mean, it will be the big issue. And it's there even before the virus was there. I remember I talk about teenagers mm. having a high level of anxiety, depression already. You know, yeah. now you superimpose this down and loneliness. All those things are happening anyway in our society, mm. you see. And now the virus is here as well. Well, so so the only way to respond to this now is to get ready in a way and try to support each other. I hate to say it. It sounds a bit sort of happy clappy in a way. But, well, you know. What does depression feel like for you? Well, I was I was lucky in a way. Well, first of all, I put that in the book for a very good reason. I decided to personalize this book a bit because humanology didn't have much of me in it. And a friend of mine said, look, would you bring your own life into this? Thought, and Humanology being your first book. My first book, yeah. And I said, oh, this is good because it'll be a different angle on the first one you see. And then each chapter had a little piece about something from my life, you know. Now, it's risky that you bring in your own. See, scientists shouldn't do that in a way, you know. It's, it should just be about the science. And then I asked a couple of friends. I wrote that, the depression chapter and the euthanasia one about my father who wanted me to kill him, you see. And I let people read it. I said, what do you think? Oh, yeah, this is great. This is good. You know, and they weren't doing that kind of in a, an opportunistic way. Now, this is really good because it captures what you're trying to say here. So I decided then to make every chapter to have a little piece. And then the depression one I did. I was 33 and I had had a health scare, right, at exactly the same time as my first child was born. Now, the health scare went away. It was something minor in the end and didn't turn into anything. But for about three months, I was looking at I might die of this health thing. And I can't raise my child and the pressure of being a new parent. I think looking back on it, you know, it was the anxiety of being a parent anyway, even if you haven't got the health scare is tough. Combined with the health scare began to get on top of me, you know, and I began to realize, oh, God, I'm having some kind of thing. I mean, it looks like depression. And I realized because I know all about depression anyway, being a medical scientist, the symptomology. And then I knew this is bad. And I guess what motivated me to get treatment many people don't go and get treatment, remember. What motivated me was I want to bring my kid up. I can't be like this, you know, for him, because my job is to be a parent, mm. you see. But were you in bed all the time? Were you... It was mild enough. In the, what it was, the symptoms were I couldn't sleep. That was the first sign there was something wrong. And then I would sleep and wake early and early morning waking is a key thing. And I knew there were like, if you, if it's four of six things, go and get help. You, know? you actually give so, the various symptoms in the book. I did, and yeah. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to see them laid out so clinically like that, because I think most people can connect to a point in their life, uh, whether through bereavement or through other stresses, where they have gone down that tunnel. And to see, uh, you know, I think you say it's five out of eight. Yeah, yeah. It depends symptoms. on the scoring system. Yeah, yeah. But if you have them for persistent over a few weeks, you see, because we all feel a bit down from yeah. time to time, you know. Yeah, but you recognised it in yourself. Oh, I did. And yeah. you went and you sought help. I did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got just before Christmas of this particular year, so I got to go and see someone, you know. And, uh, and I went to see my GP and then he said, come back to me in a week, just in case you're going to get over it, you know. And I didn't. And I went to see him again. Let's, let's help here, he says. And he found me on antidepressants. And then he recommended I go and see a therapist, which was great, actually. So a bit of talk therapy was good. And the therapist I saw was an expert on people of HIV who became depressed because the, the, the health scare was still there, you see. So this person said, yeah, I treat people who've got AIDS and they often get depressed and I can help. And then and that really worked. Maybe six sessions. And then now I was able to work all through this. It wasn't like a really severe case. But still, I knew there was something had to be done. And then I remember vividly when it began to lift. It was like almost like a, a light bulb going on again in a room kind of thing, you know. And I said, oh, this feels good. See, the, the key feature of depression really is joylessness and a, a sense of being dead, actually. It's not so much you're crying or you're down and gloomy. It's sort of a nothingness, you know. Mm. No joy from anything. And this sudden thing, oh, that's good. There was a light bouncing off the sea. I remember vividly where I was sitting there for the surge. Oh, God. This is good now. I suddenly felt a bit better, you know. So I wanted to I wanted to describe it for two reasons. First of all, because it's a personal thing for the book. But second, no, nothing unusual here, remember, and maybe encourage people who are going through that to go and get a bit of help. Mm. Because men often don't. They that don't. Men don't, especially. It. Yeah. Mm. Like it's like spraining your ankle. Kind of. And I know it's not quite, but it, it's, it's something else that happens to our bodies. In this case, it's happening to our mind. And we're not, I say in that chapter, and this is the really important message, we're not putting this earth to be miserable. Remember, you know? You've only one life, you know? 
And if you are feeling a bit down and it's persisting and you do these scores online, if you want, go and get help. Talk to someone. The GPs are well used to it. You know, the counsellors are well used to talking and you will come out of it. You know, you will get help. I was really struck by one of the stats in your book. There's a lot of really great stats in your book, but you mentioned uh, that in Ireland, uh, that in 2017, uh, Lex- Lexapro, which is uh, an antidepressant, was prescribed over 609,000 uh, um, times. And that's an escalation that is really quite remarkable because it's so unseen. Yeah. You know, people don't tend to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a of shame, you see. But, mm. And that's another reason to write about it. It's, nothing should be shameful in this at all. Mm-hmm. If you're a human being, there's a good chance you're going to have an episode of depression in your life. That's the first thing. And even if it's not full depression, it'll be a bit like I had in that direction. It won't be like clinical depression. So the fact of the matter is many people are suffering. And, and that, that's the that's, we, science loves data. I mean, there's a piece of data, you know, that tells you how widespread it is. And then, of course, the debate is, are they overprescribing? That's one possibility, you know. But a lot of suffering out there and it's got worse. I mean, I, I say And you mentioned well, millennials, actually, uh, in the book and the loneliness experienced by millennials and the fact that an older generation were not as well educated as a younger generation are. But for some reason, that younger generation and look, it could be lack of housing, uh, in, on insecurity around their job, lack of joy in the job yeah. they have. Uh, you yeah. described the, the bullshit job. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> where exactly. Just, they don't yeah. actually need to be working, but they kind of are because somebody decides they need a flunky or somebody else decides that they're, they're going to need a, a, a pen pusher for yeah. whatever reason. So they have a lack of meaning or significance. Yeah. in their in their life uh, in connection to their work which is a huge problem and I mean you are working with students all the time so can you see that at a very visceral level I can and the big advantage of me going through the depressive episode by the way was I can see it more in students and be sympathetic and try and help them you know mm. which is what it's all about being in a university in a sense it's a big mystery why this is happening at one level because how the hell have we configured a society when it should be great that's making our young people miserable and depressed and anxious. It just seems outrageous to me. And I don't have any easy answers now to this. And I sit there in my lab. I'm not, not the, you know, I educate this generation and, and we see it. You know, the, the incidence of depression, anxiety in universities has skyrocketed. The counselling services are overwhelmed with people having problems, you know. And that was another reason to write that, to say, look, anybody can get it, you know. So is it, word, is it know. down to partly the smartphone thing? Absolutely. Social media has a massive role to play in this that torments the head of the young people, especially at that age. You're very vulnerable to people's opinion of you, you see. You're, you're, when you're 18, 19, 20, your job is to form your peer group and establish your identity and all that. And the negativity on social media impinges on people terribly. So there's one reason. There's also the shaming factor. I mean, so many things can be immediately communicated to the world via a smartphone that it's actually terrifying to think about, particularly for people who may be having, you know, like they're having sex for the first time. They're in a new community when they go to college. There's so many different things that actually I read one a very interesting American piece which was saying that the number of students having sex has fallen dramatically because of terror basically yeah. of, of what could happen yeah, with yeah. GoPros or whatever yeah. you know that all sorts of things the concern yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when you were in college and this is something that um, was I really enjoyed in the book the fact that you did give personal information but you've talked about how you smoked a bit of cannabis yes uh, I didn't know. inhale though <laughs> <laughs> That's important. <laughs> but you were, you were, you know, you kind of cut loose a little bit. Oh, yeah. And then you're saying in the book, oh, God, I hope there's no guard reading this. <laughs> but you felt free to both experiment and then to tell us about your experimentation. And do you think that is important, too? Because you, as a, a young person growing up, got to do stuff that as, as an older person, you can look back on now and go, well, the wild years. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that was exactly it. In, in, in essence, I mean, I'm not going to ask it. about how many other drugs yeah, you took. Yeah, not, there's not a few many. No, not, I, I did begin to learn a bit of how dangerous drugs were as well. You, know, you did the, try the mushrooms as well, I believe. I did. I did indeed try mushrooms, yeah, from Brayhead. But uh, I, looking back on that news, here's a point that's interesting. I think we had it much easier. You know, This is what I'm saying in a sense. So when I was a teenager, looking back on it, it might, might, mightn't have seemed that way at the time. But compared to teenagers now, and I just don't understand how we've managed to do this to the next generation. I think it's really, it's shameful in a way that we've imposed on this generation so much. A second big issue, I think, is parental pressure 
has gotten much worse, you see, on teenagers. Um, we're like friends of our kids now and they don't let us down. You know, and when they begin to fail a bit, they get devastated. Like in university, for instance, you know, so we need to reconfigure how we're raising the, and look at the COVID thing. I mean, good God, this is going to be very tough for this generation, getting back to the mental health problems. Mm. It's bound to come out in more and more ways in mental health, you know. It's a, probably a simple reality that they cannot be as successful as a previous generation if we wind up in an enormous recession and they will have been hit twice from yeah. the boom to bust and now this it depends on what you define by success of course in a sense well, you know in a way you know? i mean in in terms of uh, getting getting access, a house and all that getting sort of access stuff. to the same kinds of opportunities uh, in careers and mortgages uh, yeah. family opportunities a lot of people would say that they wouldn't even never even think about something like having kids because yeah. they don't have the security so then they put off that reality yeah. until they're older and then they might be too old that's right. i think we're denying people uh, a natural right in a way you know and the analogy i've given recently with covid is if we stop young people gathering it's like stopping salmon swimming back upstream it's a natural thing that they would gather and get friendships established, get their peer group mm. established, meet a partner maybe, all that kind of thing. And we're denying them that. And then you want them to get out of the bloody house at the age of 21 and live their own lives. And if they can't do that, it's almost like a denial of human rights in a way. you know. Mm. And, and of course, depression, anxiety will be a huge feature because they can't fulfill what their biological sort of needs are. And it's strange, sort of, I know that sounds very systematic. You know what I mean though? If, if we deny people their rights, Depression and anxiety is a feature for definite, you know, and, and no more than in young people as anybody else, I think. So it's a really tricky one. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I won't keep you too much longer. Uh, there are so many other really fascinating chapters in the book, though, and I was struck by so many um, thoughts and indeed statistics. Thoughts, uh, by the way, you, you mentioned there were some personal opinions expressed in the book and personal realities. You've got Morrissey in there as a hero figure. I uh, do. <laughs> Shockingly. And, and yes. you diss Sting and I do. Fields I, of Gold. Oh, that was a cheap shot. Cheap shot. I'm actually a Sting fan. I, mean, I like the police. Yeah, so that was a cheap. I couldn't resist getting a dig into Sting. Yeah, sadly. So uh, you're yeah. a little bit worrying. I think you might get pulled up on the Morrissey oh, thing. Yeah. Um, but you also talk a lot about um, stress being a major risk factor for um, depression. And you mentioned in passing that CEOs have doubled the rate of depression uh, compared to the general public, which I was very yeah. struck Amazing, by, isn't it? Uh, yeah. you know, why Why do you think that is? I think there's a few reasons for that. Strangely, success can make people depressed. That's the first thing that's been shown by psychologists for a long time, right? Because once you earn past a certain level of income, beyond that, it, your happiness doesn't go up. It's that, That's one thing, but it can also trigger depression, strangely. So promotion can trigger depression, you see. Now, the why? big question is, why is that? It's the imposter syndrome with one aspect. Suddenly you're above your pay grade as you feel that your pay grade and it makes you anxious and depressed. You have more responsibility. That makes you worry more. And then sleep disruption, you see, is a big risk factor for depression. And maybe you're worrying and you can't sleep. There's various reasons for this, you see. CEOs are very interesting, though, as a species, remember, because I know lots of them from my business dealings, remember. Well, they're emotionally a little bit less turned on. It, well, I, I wouldn't phrase it that. That may be true, <laughs> but I would say they need to be very, very talented people because you've got to keep everybody happy, the investors. Mm the shareholders, the scientists, if it's a scientific company, the you know, the kind of the lawyers, the all that is a very complex mix, you know. And I, I just think you've got to be a certain type of person to be able to be, be driven for a start. You know, you've got to be really driven. They work really hard. Now, they get well remunerated, of course, they do, but that's for a good reason because it's a tough job. So may, maybe there's a higher rate of depression because of their underlying personality traits <laughs> as much as um, the, the stress of the job, I suppose. But it's a fascination, isn't it, that the fact is that they get twice the level of depression as other people. Well, actually, genetics comes into play a lot in the book and you have a, a section where you talk about criminality and how the jury is still out on whether our tendency to commit crimes are essentially driven by our genes that's right exactly yeah yeah it's a controversial area mind you because they've tried to find genes for criminal behavior because we know it's genetic in part but the complexity of the environment interacting with the genes is the tricky bit there in a way and mm. and some of the genes i talk about have been disproven actually as well so the jury's a bit out on that one but there's definitely genetics in crime criminal behavior and that, that's a really good one to talk about in a sense because here in previous generations lock them up they're all you know evil people but the fact is there could be a genetic predisposition to that as well so i think it's, it's an important topic mm. well um Let's return briefly just to the subject of COVID-19 uh, to conclude. 
Why do you think more men die of it than women? Yes, again, science tells us why. We know why, because there's two or three reasons. One is they're inclined to have more comorbidities. So men have more heart disease anyway and high blood pressure, and we know that's a risk factor for death, right? But the second thing is the receptor ACE2. So the virus sticks into your lungs with this spike protein, right? Into a thing called ACE2, which is like where the spike is sticking. It's like a key in a lock, I suppose. The lock is called ACE2. Men have more of that. And testosterone actually strangely increases expression of ACE2. So just but from the very get-go, if a man and a woman are standing side by side, the man will have more of the lock for the virus to lock into. So again, he's more inclined to get infected. And there will be other reasons, but they're, they're two of the big ones, it turns out, the, um, the comorbidities and the ACE2 expression. Timelines. You get asked this all the time. Yes. But we're in the final months of 2020. Yeah. When do you think we'll go back to anything resembling yeah, normal five life. euro for every time <laughs> that's the question i know I don't know this. <laughs> we're all wondering i'd, I'd love to, i wish i could tell you because i'd love to give you a definite date it's like most things there's, there's a, too many unknowns right we can give probabilities Let, let's start with that as a way to get into this and barclay investment bank i'm always quoting them lately they did a massive analysis of COVID. they brought in the brightest scientists and the brightest sort of experts and they're given an 86 percent chance by next summer a high level of vaccine rollout, right? Now, if that is true, and it probably is true, I think it's a reasonable guess, actually, looking at the vaccine thing from my point of view. If we see the vaccine rolling out, and we hope before Christmas, by the way, there's, there's signs it might, we now begin to project the next six to nine month period. Uh, the fear begins to go away with governments because now there's a vaccine. And the vaccine, remember, will decrease spread. That's what it's all about. So if I vaccinate 20% of the people and it works in half of them already we're decreasing spread you see so it begins to have an effect not, not, not without the usual things that we're calling it vaccine plus is the latest fancy term keep wearing the mask the distancing un until the middle of next year get to next June the R naught is well below one now so the virus is now not spreading anymore governments can now begin to relax all over the world open things up again and economies begin to come back to some kind of level of activity that we want uh, travel begins to get going again that's a very important part as well but you're looking at a good year timeline really before we're back to say 80 percent of where we were which isn't bad there's enough optimism out there now for us to see our way out of this and, and the other thing to say is there's no doubt we'll get out of it mm. and the message i give people all the time is keep that in your mind on a bad day on a wet monday morning when you go i'm sick of this level i think is around us we will get out of it. Remember, it's going to happen. You know, just keep that in mind and, and you might be all right. You know? All right. And last question to you. Um, I think I already know the answer, but why are you still here? You have just earned a small fortune. It's fair <laughs> to say. I don't like to be so crass as to talk <laughs> oh, about money. Oh, I can money, talk about it if you like. But it. Um, I know it's in the many, many millions. It's uh, not as much as it seems, actually. You know, the investors get a big return, remember. So the upfront was 380 million. We had four investors who gave us 55 million at risk remember and the VC world has to get a big multiple back to make it work for them right so they take the lion's share out remember but what I like about that Nadine is you, you know the NTMA invested in Fountain one of our venture capital outfits they get a big return for the Irish exchequer isn't it great because they're so the taxpayer the taxpayer benefits and I got a massive tax bill as well by the way you know um, no, I, I, I mean I did do well out of it all the employees did well because we all had stock options I was a founder as well so I got a bit more because of that so all the employees 14 employees are very happy because we all participate isn't it great was it 28 million the C well I think it was I can't remember the number exactly but we all get we all get a divvy let's put it that way the CEO does well he gets more than anybody because it's uh, getting back to our previous topic he would have a lot of preference rights in this situation so uh, oh no I'm, I'm not complaining by any means you see have you bought anything to celebrate Trinity gets a big return <laughs> I'm, I'm plugging all the others at the money you know Trinity have shares in the company isn't it fantastic my university benefits because it came out of my lab so yeah they, of course they have money to reinvest as well yeah. uh, have I bought anything not yet because <laughs> there's no a shops nice open car, there's like no a... I don't drive <laughs> There's no shops open. A new house. And I can't travel anywhere, can I? You know, so A new house. I'm now getting financial advice on what to do with the money because where's the best place to be? A bit of extra cash. Nothing will change though because carry on regardless. You know, 15 hour days are... Well, maybe slightly less. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the book is called Never Mind the Bollocks. Here's the Science uh, by, of course, Professor Luke O'Neill. And Luke, thank you so much for taking the time out for this podcast. Great. It's really Thanks appreciated. Very much great, great questions. A great discussion. And now let's hear a little sample from a track that has some lyrics that I think 
evoke how a lot of us are feeling in Ireland currently. Take me out tonight Where there's music and there's people in the young and the line Driving in your car I never, never want to go home Because I haven't got one anymore little snippet there from Marcy who is one of Luke O'Neill's musical heroes and I took the liberty of picking a track that stems from an earlier part of his career back when he was with the fabulous Johnny Marr as part of the Smiths. And my thanks once again to Mr Luke O'Neill the author of the new book Nevermind the Bollocks Here's the Science. It's out now and I do highly recommend it. It's packed full of really interesting statistics supported by lovely essay writing on a variety of topics as we were mentioning everything from uh, vaccines and anti-vaxxers through to uh, depression, millennials and so much more besides. I think you'll find it a really worthwhile read. Now, that is nearly it from me for another episode of My Roots Are Showing. If you would like to support this podcast, well, the good news is you can. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan. And you can also find that link by going to the Twitter account for this particular podcast. And it is twitter.com forward slash My Roots Are Show. If you'd like to contact me generally, I tweet over at twitter.com forward slash Nadine O'Regan. God, that was a lot of information in a very short space of time. Well, thank you for listening. And till the next time, this is Nadine O'Regan signing out. Do take care. <laughs> <laughs>